Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. There was a bit of a hum there just for a minute, wasn't it? Was it I thought it was just me. I'm getting old, my ears. But it wasn't a typical ring. It was more of the lower end. Hum. This is the grand finale of this uh, teaching series, heading into a brand new one next week. Recovering Awe has been the title of this series, and we're going to talk about the bottom line. A first grader asked his mother, Mommy, where did I come from? His mother took a deep breath and went into a detailed, explicit explanation of the reproductive organs, conception, and birth. After about 30 minutes, the bored first grader said, oh, Jimmy comes from San Diego. <laughs> the mom no doubt had a sinking feeling that she had answered the wrong question. So in these last, these last six verses of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, the wealthiest wisest, most powerful man who ever lived gives us the bottom line to one of life's most important questions. What is that? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? It is a question you can't afford to get wrong. Everybody look up here. You need to get this. This is a question you can't afford to get wrong. What is the meaning of life? because you're betting your whole life and eternity on that answer to that question. Pretty important stuff here this morning as we wrap up this study. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me and then we'll look at this text and unpack these notes. So Father God, this is a question, what is the meaning of life that many are getting wrong and the sin and the suffering all over this planet is certainly evidence of that. And many are betting their life and destiny on the wrong answer to that question, which will have devastating consequences, not just in this life, but also in eternity. We pray through the study of your infallible and authoritative word and the work of your Holy Spirit. Open our blind eyes and deaf ears to this life-liberating and soul-satisfying purpose that you created us for this purpose that you created us for. It's why we exist. And as we gaze upon our Savior, may we be transformed more and more into his image, and may we more and more enjoy and display his glory in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll start reading at verse 9. This is what he says. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. What other books did Solomon write? Yell them out to me. Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Yep. Yep, yep, those other books, and that's what he's talking about here. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. You guys remember what goads are? Darren talked about it. They're like cattle prods. So when we read these, and when we read the Bible in general, they, are, they will convict us. If we're reading it accurately, there should be something about it that convicts us, stirs us, moves us. But notice they're also like nails firmly fixed so that we can build our lives on these truths. The collected sayings, notice this, they are given by one shepherd. Who in the world is he talking about there? Yeah, he's, he's actually, what's interesting, his daddy, who is his daddy? Solomon's daddy, his father. David, King David, and we know that King David wrote Psalms and uh, much of the Psalms in the 23rd Psalm where he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He satisfies me. That's what he was saying. So he's talking about the good shepherd as stated also in John 10. So what is he, in saying this, he's giving kind of, a, he's just saying, my words are infallible and they have authority because they come from God. That's what he's saying. 
And so we can build our lives on this. This is God speaking to us. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. So our tendency is to kind of look beyond what God has to say to us, and we try to come up with our own way of living. We'll talk about that because he says, of many, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the soul. Here it is, drum roll. This is the big, this is it right here. The big statement, the meaning of life, he answers it in this one, one sentence, one verse, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And that would be a great ending to the book, but guess what? We've got one more verse and it is a gut punch. Because um, it's, it's a devastating verse if you don't know the grace of God. And um, if you don't know the grace of God and you're not devastated by this verse, it's because you're not in touch with the reality of this verse. Let me read it to you. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, heavy stuff. Let's look at, first of all, three options to finding meaning in life. They're there on your notes. You'll see them also up on the big screen here. Number one, you can try to make up some meaning. That's what this whole book has been about. We go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. We talked about it in the very first of this. You can download our app and listen to any of these. The first one, we called it meaning. But you'll notice here, and I think I've got them on your notes, and it's also up on the screen, Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Vanity of vanities. That's how he starts the book says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse three, what, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so under the sun, 29 times we saw used in this book, it means apart from God or without God. Vanity, 38 times, means vapor, breath, meaningless, a waste of time that quickly passes. Here's the essence of what he's been writing to us is that life is meaningless apart from God. That first week, we talked about three ways that we often try to come up with our own meaning. We see this in our culture today, in American culture. We try humanism, which is, hey, let's make this world a better place. And then there's hedonism, where uh, pleasure is your God. You pursue whatever great pleasure you can find. And then the third one would be existentialism, which is that you decide why you exist. And when you face suffering, be strong in the face of suffering. And, uh, and as we said in that first week, as I will say here, is that those are pretty, uh, pretty wimpy and weak reasons that will let you down inevitably. And that's what he has been doing throughout this book. In essence, we could say what he's been doing to us throughout this book is he's saying to us, if our origin... If our origin is insignificant, where we came from is insignificant, and our destiny is insignificant, then everything in between is insignificant. That's, that's the essence of what he's saying and what he's been doing. Because he's been using a Socratic method of asking questions, trying to push us out to the furthest implication of whatever it is that we have built our life on other than God to show us how fleeting and feeble to build your life on anything other than God will be. Because whatever it is, whatever pseudo-savior or counterfeit God or, or meaning that you try to come up with in creation apart from the creator, it will drive you when you seek it, disappoint you when you get it, and devastate you when you lose it. That's the point. That's why he's saying it's meaningless. It's meaningless. If we came from random chance and unlimited time, which many believe that, evolutionary process, we're an accident, and eventually the sun is going to burn out, as many scientists would say, then anything you put on life, any meaning you put on life is meaningless in the long run. If you don't believe that, you, you haven't thought out the implication of that. If this titanic life on planet Earth is inevitably going down, which most scientists would say, yeah, eventually the sun's gonna burn out, everything's gonna go, we're gonna go off into oblivion, it's no, no longer going to exist. So if this titanic life on planet Earth is inevitably going down, then rearranging the deck chairs will make no difference. So humanism, hedonism, and existentialism is just basically a rearranging of the deck chairs on this titanic called Earth, and it's all going to go down eventually. So what, what difference does it make? Okay, so what? There's an explosion that happens in the engine department or compartment 
of this big Titanic and we go down sooner. Somebody hits the button and wipes out all of mankind on this planet. So what? We're going to all be wiped out anyway, so what difference does it make? See, that's the rationale. That's the rationale that he's pushed us to. So we can try to make up some meaning. Or, number two, when we find out that the meaning that we've tried to make up doesn't work, we're going to try to escape from it. That's the next one. And and 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4 gives us all sorts of options. It says that as we head towards the end of time, that people will involve themselves in all kinds of things. And so we look to food and drugs and TV and sex and pornography. And, of course, the ultimate escape is suicide. So if you don't know the meaning of life, or try to find it in creation rather than the creator, the ultimate result will be despair. If you have some despair in your life, it's because you have misplaced your your meaning. You're building your meaning on something that will inevitably let you down or it's letting you down currently. That's why you have despair. Because God will never let you down. Building your life on Him and Him alone is a solid foundation. But this is what drives addictions. Would you say that we live in in a highly addicted society? There's no doubt about it. Why is that? Because we've tried to find meaning in creation apart from the creator, and it's letting us down, and so now we're just going to medicate ourselves. And that's what drives addictions. So the first week, this is what I said. Human beings are hardwired for awe, for amazement, for happiness. God created this world full of awe. Created awe was meant to point you to creator awe. Every sunset viewed, every favorite food savored, every vacation enjoyed is a gift from God and a pointer to him who is much more beautiful and desirable and satisfying than anything in creation. If you pursue created awe apart from it leading you to creator awe, it will ultimately leave you empty. This is the thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the point that he's been trying to get across. That's why he said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in your heart. Nothing less than God can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. That's a fact. And so you can try to make up some meaning, you can try to escape from it, or you can discover the real meaning of life. That's your third third point there, and that's found in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I gave you a number of verses there on your notes. You can study these further just to show you. This is just a a sampling, just a few, to show you that the fear of the Lord is really a big theme in Scripture, but it's a very important characteristic of believers in both Old and New Testament. And you'll notice the order, and I love the order of this. Because oftentimes I've heard people say that God is just concerned with our right conduct. Just obey. And that's not true. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. The order is really important. Fear God has to do with right relationship, the inside of us. Keep his commandments has to do with the outside of us, right conduct. It's not right conduct that God is after. It's right relationship. Right relationship produces right conduct. If you flip the order, you become religious. You become like the Pharisees who worshiped God with their lips. They looked good on the outside, but their heart was far from God. God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And so what we are going to do here is let's unpack this. Let's look at what does it mean to fear God and keep his commandments. Because that's that's the essence of the, the book, the essence of life the meaning of life. We're here to fear God, keep his commandments. And so you can see, let's start with fear God, the inside. Here's probably the best uh, definition that I've been able to uncover. And I've taught this for a few years, taught it back during our series through Proverbs. But, But this is what the fear of God is. It is this. It is a life changing, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that ruins us, it wrecks us for anything else. That's, that's the joy of the Lord, or, or the fear of the Lord, which certainly brings a, a joyful awe and wonder to our lives. So what I want to do is break down each one of these little phrases here. And I'm going to get you to participate here a little bit uh, this morning because I'm going to have you read some of the verses. Some of the verses will be up here. And so uh, as you fill in the blanks and we work through this, I just want to make sure that you're with me here this morning. And um, 
So here, here we go. First of all, it is a life-changing, that's your first fill in the blank. So fear, fear of God, is, it, it is life-changing. It is a life-changing, and then we'll kind of work through that definition. Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But notice in, in Proverbs 1.7, we've got just part of it. Let's read this together and aloud. You guys ready? Proverbs 1.7, it's up on the screen. It's also on your notes. Here we go. One, two, three. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Very good. Now, I, I, I thought he just said the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why would he say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge here? Well, because you have to have knowledge to have wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Knowledge has a lot to do with your worldview. It has to do with uh, how you, you see God, and it has a lot to do with your relationship with God. And that's why he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so, as I said last week, and I've said in the last few weeks, actually, your concept of God, your view of God, the way you see God, your knowledge of God determines the quality of your relationship with God. If you're not just excited about God, it's probably because you have a real low view of God. If these songs didn't move you and stir you this morning, it's because you have a real small view of God. It's the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, becomes the foundation for your life. And the quality of your relationship affects your daily life in a profound way. This is why two people can be in precisely the same situation, same circumstances, and have totally opposite, opposite response, opposite set of feelings towards those circumstances, towards the events of their life. It's not the, the, the events, it's not the circumstances, it's their knowledge and what they're saying to themselves about the events of life. It's their perspective it's their beliefs about those events. And that's why, as I said last weekend, suffering is inevitable and suffering will be unbearable if you don't believe that God is for you and with you, never to leave you or forsake you. If you don't believe, if you don't have that knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you don't have that knowledge, you're going to be overwhelmed by the suffering in life. That's why it begins with that. So the fear of the Lord is life-changing. That's how it's life-changing. The fear of the Lord is life-changing because it becomes the foundation of your worldview. The foundation of faith is thinking. It's knowledge. So when you ask someone, hey, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. What do you believe? What kind of knowledge? What do you know about God? That would be a good question to ask. Because that becomes the foundation of that. And then it moves to joyful awe and wonder. So the fear of God is, it is a life-changing joyful awe and wonder. Now there's a negative and a positive kind of fear. There are two ways to be afraid in the presence of someone. The negative, let's start with the negative. Negative fear is dread of being hurt. James 2.19, maybe you're familiar with this verse. It says, even demons believe, and they do what? And they tremble. They shudder. So the writer there, James, is saying, hey, you say you believe? Well, demons believe, and they shudder. But it's obviously, he's talking about a negative kind of fear, and he's talking also, trying to move them from just this mental ascent. Yeah, I believe in God, kind of this general sense that I somewhere out there, but you don't really have a relationship with him that faith will take you into. And so that's a negative fear. Hebrews 10.31 also talks about this uh, kind of almost a negative fear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. And so there's this negative fear. It's, it is the dread of being hurt. It's based on distrust. It's very self-centered on my needs. Now, as I thought about this, this verse, verse 14, that he ends the whole book on, like I said, it's a, it's a bit of a gut punch. It can be very devastating if you don't understand the grace of God. But as sinful people, we have every reason to fear God's judgment. It is a part of our motivation to be reconciled with God. Let me read the verse again, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So to fear God is living in a continual awareness that all of life is lived before the face of God. All of life is lived before the face of God. The Latin phrase for that is coram Deo. C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. 
All of life is lived before the face of God, the presence of God. Now, let me ask you, if you believed that, and whether you believe it or not, that's true. He knows every thought, every secret thing, as it says in this this verse, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He knows all, but what difference would that make in your life if you believe that? I know what it would do for me, what it does for me. And you've heard me talk a lot about the presence. I, I love the presence. Of, I love the fact that one of the, the best thing about the Christian life is we have his presence. But that can be really convicting. It can convict me in my sin because I can do things and, and say things and think things that all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, I'm not kidding anybody because God sees what I'm doing and what I'm thinking and what I'm saying. So it can be convicting, but it's also very comforting. It's extremely comforting because he's there. He's always for me, never to leave me or forsake me. And by the way, to the degree that it's convicting to you is to the degree it will be comforting to you. The reason why it's not very comforting to you and you kind of collapse in suffering is because you're not living in the reality of the fact that even when you sin, he's also there too. And so when you begin to have the combination of those two, you're living in that, in what I would call really the sweet spot of his presence, in his presence is fullness of joy, at his right hand are pleasures evermore. So that's a good place to be, and so it should create that within us. How would, how would you live if you remembered that your whole life is being lived before the face of God, both conviction in sin and comfort in suffering? Heard the story of a guy that was struggling with porn and confided in his friend that uh, he seemed to give in to temptation when his wife and kids weren't around the house, and so his friend asked him, if he believed in the omnipresence of God. The guy goes, yeah, oh yeah, I I believe in the omnipresence of God. And he said, no, you don't. He says, because if you believed in the omnipresence of God, your least concern would be the fact that your children and wife leave the house because you're doing all of that before the face of God. There's another interesting illustration here. Imagine this, if you were impersonating a police officer. We've got some police officers that attend here. I had a long conversation with one in the hallway here earlier. I was gonna ask him what would happen, and I kinda know what would happen. But if you were impersonating a police officer, you might get away with it for a while until another police officer shows up. And what's gonna happen? You're going to get arrested and get thrown in jail. They're going to go, who are you? You're not part of this precinct. You're not, where are you from? You just put lights on your little Nova? (laughs) That's a little ridiculous. He says, why do you have a full beard too? What's up with that? It just, I mean, you you don't fit the part, but you're trying to act the part. You're impersonating, impersonating the officer. The essence of sin is impersonating God. It is believing the lie that I won't be happy if I obey God, so I'll be God. It goes back to the garden. That's what they did. They began to doubt God's goodness and said, ah, he can't pull this off. We can do this. And they began to impersonate God. So if we were to put those two illustrations together, the essence of sin is not only a failure to be aware that all of life is before the presence of God, but it's even worse than that. It is impersonating God. That's our sin. That's the essence of sin. We just kind of live our life however we please, just ignoring God most of our life once in a while, maybe tipping our hat, acknowledging him from time to time. But the worst thing is that we impersonate him. We don't think that he can rule and reign in our life. We think we can do it on our own. We think we know better than him. And so, therefore, what do we do? We trample on his love and wisdom and all that he offers us. So the fear of the Lord is to live all of life before the presence of God under the authority of God for the glory of God. So that takes us really to this positive fear. So negative fear is dread of being hurt. Positive fear is dread of causing hurt. It's it's fear of causing hurt. It's based on trust and is very other-centered on, on their needs. Let's read this verse together and aloud. It's Proverbs 28, 14. Do you see it there up on the screen? 
up behind me. Here we go. One, two, three. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Isn't that an interesting verse? Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. So there's blessing in fearing. This is that positive fear. Negative kind of fear makes you miserable, but this positive kind of fear makes you blessed, happy, total fulfillment and complete well-being. Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but that you fear the Lord your God? And then it adds to that, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So he's saying the fear of the Lord and walking with God, enjoying God, loving God, serving God, those go hand in hand. That's positive fear, not the negative fear. He's gonna hurt me. No, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to trample on his love and wisdom. So what produces this positive kind of fear, this dread of causing hurts? The next statement on your notes. So fear is, is a life-changing, joyful, awe and wonder, here it is, of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he has done. Psalm 134, it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting? Why would, you know, when you think of fear, oftentimes most people think of being afraid, but we're talking here a positive fear of causing hurt, and he says, with, with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. So it increases this positive fear. When I begin to realize what you've done for me, you forgive me, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to do anything that would trample on, on your love and wisdom towards me. That's, that's the point that he's making. Now, let's read... Let's read this next verse uh, aloud and together. It's really, a, this is a powerful verse. You guys ready? Sit up in your seat. Punch the person next to you. Make sure they're paying attention. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You guys weren't doing very good on that one. Some of you, were you guys with me? Was I on the wrong verse? Do over? You guys want to do over? Okay. Okay, do over. Here we go. Let's do it like you mean it. Maybe I didn't do a very good job at leading it, okay? I'll take the blame for that one. Okay, here it is. Proverbs 16, 6. One, two, three. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is toned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. That's a good verse. Yeah, you guys did good. Woo! I love it. That's good, good. Notice what it says here. The commentators will tell you that these two Hebrew words, steadfast love and faithfulness, create a conundrum in this verse. Steadfast love means absolute, total, unconditional love. Faithfulness means total, unconditional commitment to truth and righteousness, which would be holiness. So the conundrum is here. It's saying that God is loving, and yet he's holy. He's loving, and yet he's holy. And so, so now how can God be totally loving and totally holy and deal with unclean people, sinful people? The answer would be he can't. Well, that's the logical answer. Because if he's totally loving, he would have to overlook our sin and compromise his holiness. If he's totally uh, holy, faithful, he would have to bring just judgment upon us for our sins and compromise his love. Because we've ignored him, we've shrugged our shoulders at him, we've done our own thing, we've impersonated him, we thought we could do better than him, and that's our sin, and, and so how does he do this? Because it actually says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Iniquity is sin. Atoned for? It's forgiven, it's taken care of. And, and so, so he says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. I mean, that's the source of this positive fear, dread of causing hurt. The positive fear brings life change. Notice it says, turn away from evil. If you have fear of the Lord, you'll turn away from evil. You're going to look at things and you're going to go, oh my goodness, why would I do that when I have him? And, and I don't want to do anything that would hurt him or offend him after all that he's done for me. That's that positive, that positive fear. How could that happen? Notice the Proverbs writer doesn't tell us how. He just says it has. Now, keep in mind, anytime you're reading in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, what's, what's the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, the whole Bible is about who? And it's about Jesus. 
The whole Bible is about Jesus. So anytime you read the Bible, it's going to be pointing to him, both Old and New Testament. Yes, he's even in the Old Testament. And, and in fact, Jesus even said this in John chapter 5 and Luke 24. But the Old Testament predicts God's rescuer and the New Testament presents God's rescuer, Jesus. And so they looked ahead for their salvation. We look back for our salvation. What, what did they look ahead to and what do we look back to? The cross, to Christ. And so we know how he pulled this off. And here's what we know. Centuries later on the cross, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's incredible what we have in him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by, by, by me. Way, yeah, the way to God. Truth, truth about God. Life, the very life of God that we can have. So it's his graciousness towards us that makes me not want to do anything that would hurt, offend, or misrepresent him. And sure enough, all of us have ignored, we've snubbed, we've shrugged our shoulders at the true and living God, and we've even impersonated him. And how does he respond? How does he respond to our wickedness, to our evil? He's responded by sending his son to rescue us. Oh my goodness. And Jesus came, his first coming was, he came to do what? Not to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. The judgment that we deserved. Man, I, I can just never, I have never been able to get over the gospel. I've never been able to get over God's love for us. It's absolutely amazing. It's stunning. It's beautiful. It's out of this world. And so he comes to rescue us. He gave us his son. I love what uh, Max Lucado says in his book, In the Grip of Grace. What a God! Ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so we can be what we dare not dream. Perfect before God. Perfect before. I don't care what kind of week you had. I don't care what kind of day you're already having. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you stand perfect before God, justified. Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing truth. This is what separates Christianity from every other, other major religion in this world. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's stunningly beautiful. Now, if I gave to you a priceless, beautiful Ming Dynasty vase. Let's say at the end of the service, I want you to come out to my truck, and I've got it in the, in kind of in the back seat there. It's all covered up. It's in, you know, it's all it's protected. But I'm going to give you this Ming Dynasty vase that is thousands of years old, worth millions of dollars. Any takers? We don't believe you, Pastor Ray. Well, that, you have every reason not to, me telling a story like that. But let's just say, let's, let's just pretend that I have that and I give that to you. You would be afraid not that it's going to hurt you, but that you will hurt it, that you would drop it because if you dropped it, it would be totally worthless. I've never experienced a greater gift, neither have you, than the soul-satisfying, life-liberating intimacy with God through the indispensable and costly love of his son's death on the cross in my behalf and in your behalf. And what's amazing about the gospel message is that you don't need to work for God's forgiveness and acceptance. You only need to trust the one who completed that work on your behalf. That's it. And by the way, this is the end of this series. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series. One of the things that I enjoy doing during the summer months when it's really excruciating hot out there is that I spend a lot of time inside drinking iced mochas. Thank you very much. And, um, and I, I, I just absorb and I soak and I savor and I just let God lavish me with his love through my meditation and reflection and memorization of, of key verses in scripture. And so I thought, man, it would be a really fun to do a road trip together through 
Romans chapter eight, I believe the greatest chapter in the Bible. It starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation. And then it ends that there's no separation. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. And there's a whole lot of really rich truths in between those two truths. And we're going to spend the next 10 weeks just mining those truths out, savoring them, enjoying them, letting God lavish us with his love. Believe me, when you do that, the fear of the Lord will begin to increase in your life unlike ever before, and it will ruin you for anything else. That's the next point on your notes, that ruins you for anything else. So the fear of the Lord is a life transforming, life-changing, joyful, all in wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. Proverbs 23, 17 through 18. One of the things that I love about us when we gather together is I kind of feel like this is kind of group counseling. You ever feel like that? <laughs> this is kind of group counseling. Thank you for coming to this counseling session. Okay, and I'm going to kind of help facilitate this counseling session. And so this next verse I'm going to read is really one of those counseling verses. It really helps us to deal with all of our junk. Anybody have junk in your life? I do. I've got tons of junk, and I like getting rid of all that junk. This verse will help you to get rid of the junk in your life. And Proverbs 23, 17 through 18, listen to what he says. Let not your heart envy sinners. Or you could say, let not your heart uh, worry. Let not your heart be covetous. Let not your heart be filled with anxiety. But what, is, what does he give as the solution? What's the remedy? But continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. He's telling us, here's the answer to all of our woes. Here's the answer to all of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It's the fear of the Lord. And, and practice this all of the day. Because notice what he says. And he's talking in relationship to envy, because envy is typically we... We want what someone else has, and we think that what they have, we deserve it. They don't deserve that, and we would be happier if we had it. And he's saying, why are you doing that? If you have the fear of the Lord, you're not going to have that envy. If you realize what you had in me, you're not going to have that envy, because notice what he says in verse 18, surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Don't you realize what you have in me? Obviously, you don't. You're not living in the reality of what you have in me, and that's, that's a great uh, two verses and so the way you overcome envy, worry, covetousness, anxiety, whatever you're struggling with, is by the fear of the Lord. And notice he says, all the day. The fear of the Lord is, a, is really a discipline. It is, it is a discipline of taking an attribute of God and reflecting on it and thinking about it and savoring it until it creates in you an inward condition of amazement so that it affects the way in which you live out your life. So as I begin to put together this message and I begin to reflect on the, the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done, oh my goodness, I thought my heart was going to explode. Just like, oh my goodness, I've, had, I've never had anyone love me more than you love me, God. Oh my goodness, why, why do I get so stressed out? I don't need to stress out, I've got you. And that's, that's exactly it. See, for example, I envy when I forget his love. I worry when I forget his wisdom. I covet when I forget his beauty. I'm anxious when I forget his sovereignty. Because you can't envy, worry, covet, or be anxious and fear God at the same time. You can't do those two things. And so it's the fear of the Lord. It's, it's taking those attributes. That's why we're going to spend... 10 weeks in, in Romans 8, because that's what it's all about. It's just taking those truths about uh, what are true about us as it relates to God, being in Jesus, all the blessings we have from him, through him, and take them down deep into our hearts so that they begin to make a difference in our lives. See, you can know a lot of information about a person and even believe, believe it, believe this information is true about this person, but it's not the same as an encounter with that person. Listen to this uh, this is from Jonathan Edwards, 18th century uh, American theologian, really brilliant man. Much of his stuff is really hard to understand, but this is one of his uh, journal entries during a certain time in his life. Listen to what he says. I began to have a new kind of inward sweet sense of Christ. I spent much time reading and meditating on him, and I found the beauty and excellency of his person. I found an inward sweetness 
used as it were to carry me away in what I know not how to express otherwise than to say it was a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from the concerns of this world in a sense of being alone, sweetly conversing with Christ wrapped up with God. The sense I had of these things would often, all of a sudden, as it were, would kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, in ardor of my soul. I do not know how to express. He's just overwhelmed with the presence of God. Like I said, the best thing about the Christian life is the presence of God. He's just like, he's like, he began to experience what he called a, a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from the concerns of this world. In other words, the things he used to fear losing became abstract compared to the reality of knowing Christ. It began to eliminate the envy, the worry, the covetousness, the anxiety in his life. Now let me ask you this. Do you know that? Do you know him like that? Do you have long lingering looks into the face of God, knowing that all of life has lived before the face of God and the very presence of God. Is there a richness to your life? Because you're living in the reality of his presence. You understand that? We have his presence. We'll never be separated from him. Oh my goodness, that's the best thing about the Christian life. I love, I absolutely love spending time with him. One of the, like I said, when I, when I go on vacation, man, I just... I spend a lot of time with the Lord. It's just those times I can focus in and really get a sense of that, what he's talking about here. Um, I've, I've been told, and I know this for a fact in my own life, if you follow your fears, follow your fears and you'll discover what you most love. Follow your fears and you'll discover what you most love. What do you most fear? And that will tell you what you most love. But if, if you'll fear God, you'll fear nothing or no one else. So the cure to, you know, I don't know about you, but I get anxious about my kids, I get anxious about my grandkids, I get anxious about you guys here in this church. I get overwhelmed sometimes with a lot of the brokenness. But man, when I spend time with, with God, I remember who it is that loves me and cares for me and he's got it all under control that he knows he cares and he rules. And I'm reminded of that. And it's not just a, just a concept. It becomes a reality as I worship him and as I spend time with him. Do you sense him? When was the last time you had a sense of him on your heart? Have you encountered him? Do you want him? Do you desire him? Do you long for him more than anything? And that's, that's that. That will ruin you for anything else. I, I understand. Maybe your marriage is jacked up. I understand that. I've had a jacked up marriage for, for a number of years. Not now, but, but I have. I have, and there's some times, and there were some seasons in my married life that it was, oh, it was hard, but the thing that helped to bring remedy to it is to press in and get to know Christ, and then out of that love he has for me and my love for him, it began to overflow into my marriage, and my wife began to do the same thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. He rescued our marriage but it was because we begin to develop this fear of the Lord. The same thing can be true with finances. The same thing can be true with, with whatever stresses, whatever's going on in your life. Just spending time with him, knowing him, experiencing him. Now, this moves into the last part of this is keeping his commandments. Keep his commandments. So fear God. That's the most important thing. Fear God, keep his commandments. And as we talk about keeping his commandments, let me once again, let me remind you here that this is not earning my way to God. Keeping his commandments is not earning your way to God. It is a way of saying thank you. I trust your perfect love and infinite wisdom and want to become more like you out of this relationship I already have with you that you have secured through the costly love of your son. I already have that relationship. So it's out of that I'm responding to him by obeying him. And there's two ways we do it. We do it unconditionally. And let's read 1 John 5, 3. You guys ready? As soon as, you, as soon as you fill in the blank there, let's take a look up on the screen, also on your notes. 1 John 5, 3, nice and loud. 1, 2, 3, this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not what? Burdensome. They're not burdensome. 
They're not burdensome. Why? Because he empowers us with his presence and enables us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. We have his presence. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will do what? He will direct our paths. He leads and guides us. Now, there's two questions. You know that you're trusting God unconditionally when you can look at every area of your life and answer yes to these two questions. Here's the first one. Am I willing to obey whatever God says in Scripture in every area of my life, whether I agree with him or not? Let me say that again. I said it really fast, didn't I? Okay? Let me say it again. Am I willing to obey all that he says? Am I willing to obey all that he says whether I agree with him or not? And the only reason why you'd be able to do that, if you could say yes to that, is because you trust his love and wisdom. You know that he has your best interest at heart. That's the first question. Here's the next question. This is an even harder question. Am I willing to accept whatever God sends into my into any area of my life, whether I understand it or not. So the first question is, am I willing to obey whatever he says, whether I agree with him or not? The second question, am I willing to accept whatever he sends, whatever he sends into my life, whether I understand it or not? That's when you're beginning to trust God with all of your heart and you're not leaning upon your own understanding. You're acknowledging him. The word acknowledge literally means you have intimacy with God. And that intimacy, you know he's going to lead and guide you and you've put your life in his hands. You're truly trusting him. One of the biggest issues is that our questioning God's ways is, like a, is really a lot like a seven-year-old questioning the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. Our biggest problem is that we refuse to admit the distance between our wisdom and the wisdom of God. We don't want to admit that. And the wisdom difference between us and God is infinitely greater than the wisdom difference between a seven-year-old and a world-class physicist. And so we, we, when you begin to understand that, you just say, okay, God, yes. Yes to all of what you say. Yes to all that you send into my life. My life is for you. See, that's, you're going to keep his commandments unconditionally, but also you're going to do it joyfully. Going to do it joyfully. Let's read Psalm 48. This will be the last verse I'll have you read. Psalm 48. Here we go. One, two, three. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. So I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is in my heart. Now, quick story. Let me share with you a story here. Um, this is, some of it's true, some of it's a, a bit hypothetical. It was my beautiful bride's birthday this last week, and, and let's just say, and, and I did this, uh, I, I wanted to surprise her after we worked out this last Friday, I wanted to surprise her by taking out for breakfast and then catching an early movie, a chick flick, and, um, and it was a good, it was actually really a good movie, and so I, I surprised her, somewhat surprised her with that. She likes surprises, I'm kind of more planned out. I don't like surprises, and, but she likes surprises. She's a little more spontaneous with her life. But let's just say that, uh, that I, I, I say that after we work out and it was her birthday and I said, hey, I want to take you out to breakfast. I got a movie and the movie's going to start at this such and such time. And what if, what if she responded by saying, that's wonderful. What would make you want to do that? You hunk a hunk of burning love. <laughs> oh, uh, she didn't actually say that last phrase, but I just thought I would add that in there because it would certainly help our marriage out if she would start saying things like that. <laughs> hint, hint, I hope she's listening to this message right now. But uh, she, so, so that's wonderful. Why would you want to do that? And what if I were to respond to her by saying, it's my duty. I've read the book on being a good husband and that's what good husbands do and I've done my duty and I want to do my duty. How do you think she would respond? Think, how would she feel? Terrible. Uh, hey, is duty bad? Is it bad to, to do your duty? That doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> I'm sorry. Duty's not bad. But there's something much better. What if I would have responded to her by saying, when she says, that's wonderful, why would you want to do that? And I said, it's my pleasure. There's nothing I'd rather do, want to do. There's nothing I'd rather do than to be with you and to take you out to breakfast in a movie. And when I say that, nothing will make me happier than to be with you, what does that do? That honors her. 
that honors her. There's an interesting uh, last verse here, Genesis 29, 20. Remember the story of Jacob, and he had to work seven years for Rachel, and then he woke up on his wedding morning, found out, this isn't Rachel, this is Leah. And so what does he have to do? He has to work another seven years for Rachel. You guys remember the story? Check this verse out. Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years. He already worked seven years. He's going to work another seven years? He's in love. What is the meaning of life? This is the meaning of life. You were created by God for God to give glory to God. And God is most glorified in us when we say nothing will make us happier than to be with you, to serve you, to love you, to obey you. And nothing, nothing will, nothing will make you happier than to know him, love him, serve him, and to obey him. That's it. That's what he says. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Fear God. Keep his commandments. I love it. I love it. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't even know what it means to have a relationship with God, I would encourage you, this is a great time even as we're praying, to make a confession of faith in him. Acknowledge that your sins separate you from God. Believe that he died on the cross for your sin through his son, Jesus, and then confess him as Savior. In prayer, by faith. Father God, as we finish this book in the study in the book of Ecclesiastes, may, may we be people who live with a deep sense of meaning and purpose, experiencing this life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he has done for us to the degree that it ruins us for anything else. Keeping, keeping your commandments unconditionally and joyfully for your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.